0: Visit MethodProducts.com to unleash your inner shower.
1: All right, now we are on the line. We have Daniel Carcillo joining us. How are you, Mr. Carcillo? Good, guys. How are you? Great, thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, no problem. So, Daniel, we are going to have uh, Kelly ask you some questions. It's uh, Bell Let's Talk Day today, and we thought it was the perfect opportunity to have you on, so I'm going to throw it over to Kelly, and uh, let's just have a good conversation here.
0: All right. So before we get to the important stuff, um, this whole interview with you came about because we were kind of doing some reminiscing about the 2010 Cup run on Twitter. And I just wanted to know what your favorite moment from your time as a Flyer was.
2: Um, good question. I think um, I came over from Arizona and I was just excited to be playing in a market that was um, where fans were so passionate and uh, had such a history behind the organization and I made a, a lot of really good friends who I still have to this day, from Giroud, to um, Hartnell to Asham to Riley Cote, Jeff Carter, Mike Richards, um, Kimo Timanen. And, uh, so I think the connections that I made on that team and while, while I spent my time there were, were really special. And, um, I would have to say it was the guys and, uh, and that 2010 run was, uh, was something else for sure.
0: Yeah, we were talking about it a lot today. It's it's literally the most fun we've had as a Flyers fan. All of us, I think, it was insanely fun.
2: Yeah, it was great. I mean, even during the season, like looking up in the three hundred levels and seeing a fight every time in the stands. <laughs> um, you know, there was. I remember my brothers when we played when we played the Penguins. Uh, my brothers came down, and um. um I don't think it was, it wasn't the 2010 run, but they were in, they were all tailgating. Everybody was tailgating, right? It was really nice weather. And that was something new that my brothers had never seen. And there was a guy in a Phillies jersey and a guy in a Penguins jersey walking together. And I guess somebody just went up to the guy in the Penguins jersey and just punched him right in the face. Oh boy. Uh, uh, That's that's My brothers were like, oh, what what the heck did we get into? And uh, yeah, it was, um, I mean, like the city was just super passionate and the fans were were super passionate and uh, I enjoyed my time there.
0: So I'm glad you actually brought up Riley Cote because we talked to him a couple of years ago about what it was like to be a fighter in the NHL. And we were kind of talking before the show and we were wondering, because obviously guys like you and Riley Cote, at some point in your hockey careers early on, you you guys are elite hockey players. Like you wouldn't have gotten to where you were without being exceptionally good at the game and we were wondering at what point does the fighting take over like is it a coach or something that forces you into that role or is it just kind of a natural progression or how does that happen
2: uh for me I was in Wilkes-Barre and it was just the way I played the game I played the game hard and I was I hit a lot and um so I remember my first game um Elaine Nazardine was our captain Dennis Barney was on our team we had a really tough team in Wilkes-Barre and um, I played the first game and I knocked out, uh, Kevin Callie, and I went back to the bench and everyone was kind of looking at me like, what the heck is that? Because <laughs> like you said, I was, a in junior, I was a 30 goal scorer every year and I fought maybe four times in, in three years in the OHL. And I saw it as something that I had to do to be honorable with mm-hmm. the way that I played the game. And then I ended up being really good at it. And it was something that I continued to do because, um, whenever I saw injustice or whenever I saw guys getting taken advantage of, um, I thought that, that was something that I could put on my resume. I could skate, I could shoot, I could score, I could hit and I'll stick up for my teammates. And so I just wanted to do everything in my power to get into the NHL. And that was something that, um, that I did and, and put on my resume and then you end up, you know, um, kind of getting pigeonholed into that role once, once you're good at it. Right. And
1: yeah. so,
2: um, That's just, uh, I guess, it goes with the territory.
0: So today, as we mentioned, is Bell Let's Talk Day. And today you released a couple of videos on your YouTube channel, um, which everyone should go check out. They're quite powerful. Um, And they are essentially your personal testimonials about having some traumatic brain injury, CTE, um, what it's like to live with that, how you get through it. And one of the things that I found really remarkable about the videos and about you in general is that you seem to be so at ease talking about these things, and a lot of people find it very difficult to talk about mental health issues. How did you get to this place where it was so easy for you to share your story?
2: Um, it's been a nine-year journey um, from 19 to 25. I wasn't the greatest person. I was pretty selfish and just wanted to make a name for myself and, um, in, the, in the league. And um, I think you live, I lived a hard life. Um, you know, on and off the ice, and and it caught up to me at 25, and I I had a decision to make uh, after Philly didn't qualify me, and I got signed for basically half of what I was worth the year before, and it was a big wake up call, and um, I ended up uh, going to rehab, and when I was 25 to get off of opiates, and uh, I just learned a lot about myself there. Um, I learned a lot about spirituality, and I learned a lot about um, how my actions uh, affect other people, and uh, it actually changed the way that I played the game, and but it made me a better teammate. And I always say this, and when you live the right way, your luck is a sure thing. And my last five years in the league, I went to the Stanley Cup Finals four times with three different teams, and I won twice and I lost twice. And I don't think that happens to somebody if you're a bad teammate or if you're, if you're not living the right way, you know, um, because that is lucky. Some guys don't even get to the playoffs. So,
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: Yeah, uh, Daniel, I just wanted to know, you talked about how, uh, I remember a quote when you first got acquired by the Flyers, and you talked about in your rookie year, you were kind of reckless and just trying to make a name for yourself, and you just kind of spoke to that. How do you think like you evolved as a player uh, in your time, you know, you said at 25 and then going forward? How do you think you changed your game? Um,
2: I don't think it was so much changing my game rather than, how I interacted with my teammates and, and um how I was conscious about my actions off the ice um and in the dressing room and um you know it was less more about myself than it was about the greater good of the team and um so you know you you live and you learn like I've made a lot of mistakes and I own up to them you know and I've um one thing I don't regret is is the way I played the game and um you know they the NHL created a role for us, and it was a job, and it's very much a job. And, um, you know, it's a livelihood, and, and eventually, you know, that job catches up to you. and It caught up to me at 30, and I had to retire because of post-concussive syndrome. And my last game in the NHL was actually um, against the Philadelphia Flyers in Philly, and Bellamar caught me with a right, and that was my seventh diagnosed concussion. And the, the symptoms are just brutal. And uh, it was not too long after Steve Mondor had passed away, and we were really close. And um, I was just spiritually, mentally, and physically done, you know, um, done with the game. And, and uh, I had my son was born in, in November, and we were lucky enough to end up winning. I, I ended up winning my second Stanley Cup with the Hawks that year, but I thought it was – that was it. You know, that was it was time to walk away. I never – I always wanted to be a father and I had my son and I didn't want to be an absent father and you're on the road a lot. and So there are a lot of factors pointing towards, you know, moving on and um, there's nothing wrong with moving on at a, at a young age to start your second life because uh, athletes die two deaths and Derek Armstrong said it best when he said that, you know, we really do. We die two deaths. We die when a piece of us dies when we leave the game and then, you know, we die when we die, you know, so...
1: I, I like how you put it just uh, making sure sh- I think it's important people know that it, you re- it really is a job and the physical toll it takes on you obviously you know, getting punched in the face getting checked into the boards while it's happening probably isn't the greatest feeling in the world but we spoke to Riley Cote a little while back as Kelly mentioned and he talked to us about preparing mentally uh, for games like when he'd go in and know oh, 48 hours ahead of time I'm going to be fighting George Laroque tomorrow and just how that kind of anger anxiety would wear on him like can you talk about the toll that that kind of thing takes on you where you know you have to go do that job maybe uh you had over 100 fights in your career uh between regular season preseason and all that but uh just what kind of toll does that take on you not so much the physical but also yeah I, I got to do what I got to do tomorrow
2: yeah I mean you have to be a mental assassin you know where you have to you have to be physically mentally sound to be able to make a team right And it is a team sport once you're on the ice, but if you're not prepared you're not making that team and you don't have the chance to compete um, you know a lot of times later on in my career, I wasn't playing in those games and um, so you have to bring a different element to it. you have to be a good team guy, and I love making playlists and connecting with guys and um, but the role itself was was difficult some nights, for example, I couldn't sleep that day um, before my last game, you know I was journaling a lot about Steve and crying in my room and um, because I didn't, I really didn't want to play. You know, I was done when Steve died after Steve died. I I was just so done and um, I was really out of shape. Um, and they decided to put me in because we already had a playoff spot clinched and it was Philly and there were a lot of guys there, right. That needed to be kind of protected against that team. And I think you guys were out of it that year. And um, so they decided to put me in, but I just remember, you know, sweating and, and just uh, playing in that first period. And I was out of shit. I had no reason to be playing in that game. And for some reason I played really well and the puck was following me around. And I honestly felt Steve next to me uh, during that first period. And I remember going into the room and just breaking down and crying during the first intermission and walking into the massage room and Johnny Taves came in and said, what's up? And I just, you know, I just, I just felt Steve with me and it was, a lot. It was really heavy. And then, um, it was really emotional. And to be honest, you know, there was no reason for me to fight Bellamar, but, um, you want to change your state of mind. And, and to be honest, I was in a lot of pain and I wanted to feel something different, even though it was, it was emotional pain. I wanted to feel that physical pain. And, um, um, yeah, you know, and, and that fight happened. And then I was, I was in the room and, you know, again, Emotionally breaking down, crying, and um, and then the symptoms after that seventh diagnosed concussion were just brutal. And um, couldn't look at my phone, and had to spend about three weeks at home uh, until the symptoms somewhat subsided. And um, while you're in the game, it's it's weird, you know, when you're playing, when you're stimulated, guys. Right now, they feel healthy, you know, and. I went to a clinic in 2013 and Steve monitor, you know, begged me to go during the lockout. I'm like, why I'm not feeling any symptoms. Um, and I ended up getting treatment this past, um, April back in 2018 again. And they, they didn't tell me then, but they told me when I went back to the clinic that I was their worst TBI case they'd ever seen and they didn't want to scare me or anything, but that's, that's scary, you know, and that's why I do what I do now. And I advocate for proper understanding diagnosis and care because these guys really truly do not understand the risks that they're under. And once you finish playing the game and you get into the real world, because I'm in the real world right now, I don't walk out my door. I'm standing in a parking lot. There's not 21,000 people cheering on, you know, cheering for me right now doing this (laughs) interview. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, um, you have to repurpose your life and do some self discovery work. And number one is, you know, get sober to assess the state of your brain and then move into treatment and, um, You know, that's, that's what I did for my family, you know, get as healthy as I can for my family.
0: Dan, this is Steph. I had a stroke in April, so not a traumatic brain injury, but a brain injury nonetheless. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I know what it's like to Mm -hmm. know the words that you're trying to say and not have them come out of your mouth and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, knowing that you remember things, but you can't quite figure out what it is, um, how mm-hmm. do you personally how do you get through the bad days?
2: Um I mean like today today's a heavy day, right? You're talking, you're looking um you know Twitter's Twitter's a, a war zone. <laughs> and yeah, it's right. A yeah. lot of people don't understand what what I'm doing and they think I'm trying to save hockey and I'm not at all, right? And um I have a 5-year plan in place. And the first part of the plan is to go through the platform of the NHL, the way they use me. I'm going to use them to get my narrative to the veteran community, police officers, firefighters, first responders, uh, women of domestic violence, child abuse, um, people that don't understand what is going on to either themselves or their family members so that maybe a parent can recognize the signs and symptoms in their son or daughter and, and help get them into treatment or remove them from sport. You know, what a lot of people don't know is that there's 40 doctors in the world right now that make the consensus statements for our kids' return-to-play protocol. 16 of those doctors are employed by the NFL, 8 of those doctors are employed by the NHL, and 6 of them are employed by rugby. Wow. You have three of the major collision sports. Uh, 30 out of the 40 doctors are the ones going around, playing off each other, making consensus statements for our kids. And 8 of those doctors are in the League of Denial, the last league that has yet to admit Um, that repetitive head trauma is linked to CTE. And that's really scary, you know, and that's why I do what I do. Like, that's the ultimate goal, right, is to to educate parents and kids in the risks of playing sport. It's not about not playing sports. Just understand the risks that you're under. And if you want to sign on the dotted line, then you can monetize that if, if that's what you want to do. And um, but then take it a step further. This type of treatment can help optimize athletes, right? And it can make them less susceptible to injury. And so it works on a lot of different levels. Um, number one, for the for the human being, that's the most important. He doesn't play the game susceptible to more head trauma and then leave the game with a chemical imbalance, dealing with mental health complications that he's never been predisposed to. Number two, the fancy and optimized athlete. And then number three, there's less man games lost for the owners and GMs. So right now... It's litigation, so it's a lot of lawyer talk, and the league will not admit it, right? Until they will not make serious changes, right? Um, I know about the video that they make now. Like with, I think it started in 2016. I retired in 15. There was not one word about early onset dementia or Alzheimer's or anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, none of that. Um, so they make a pretty fluffy video now, which is which is okay. Um, but still they're not getting the proper understanding, uh, guys. And I truly believe, and I know because guys tell me, right. Um, and I've gotten probably 30 to 40 plus guys into treatment under the table and, um, that are still playing in the league. Wow. And, um, you know, number one you don't know that three or more traumatic brain injuries, you're more, you're 80% susceptible to early onset dementia, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, you know? And, um, these things are scary, right? So, like, what I plan on doing and what I've already done is, well, the next videos that are coming out on the YouTube channel through Chapter 5 Foundation are, are going to be about uh, concussion prevention. And the next one is going to be about um, an acupuncturist in Beverly Hills who does amazing work uh, with brain injuries. And, um, and then the one after that is going to be of the University of Cincinnati, who's actually practicing athlete medicine and not sports medicine. Um, they're not putting the sport before the athlete. Uh, They've cut their concussion rate by 80% in the NCAA football league. And it's not one or two years. It's been over eight years now since 2010. So if the league wants to actually take action, if I can find these people, I'm sure they know that they exist. And, um, you know, I just did a forward for brain damage. And when people see the timeline of when CTE was actually found, which was in the 1900s, and then they see that the research has been suppressed from 1989 to 2003 when the NFL was at its height because they have a lot of money and they can do that sort of thing, I think it's going to open up a lot of eyes. You know? And uh, I'm working behind the scenes now with a, a PhD and a couple doctors, and we're going to make our own consensus statements. We're going to make our own patient bill of rights, and we're going to put that out in 2020 when these 40 doctors announce theirs again. And then you can, take a, you can decide which ones you want to follow. And that's why I stay independent of everybody. And I'm just a guy on social media um, trying to educate and trying to get as many people as I can healthy and into treatment.
0: So I'm glad you mentioned your Chapter 5 Foundation, um, which you and your wife and Ben Eager, I think, started. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people see you being very vocal about these issues with traumatic brain injury, but I'm not sure a lot of people know that you're also working to help your fellow athletes transition from life as a professional athlete mm-hmm. to what can only be called regular life, I guess. Um, why do you <laughs> think that transition is so difficult to make?
2: Um, because like I said before, we don't live in the real world. Uh, nobody's making you an omelet. There's no omelet station when I get up <laughs> um, and go to the rink. Uh, nobody's making my schedule. Nobody's telling me my days off the first you know, part of the year, over 182 days. Um, I don't get paid bi-weekly over 182 days um, when I do a job. Um, you know, I, there's there's different rules, right? And that's why I think hockey players identify with musicians, identify with veterans, identify with police officers, firefighters, first responders. All of these people do jobs that aren't the real world, right? And so when we get out of those jobs, it becomes very hard to assimilate back into, into real life. Um, and so what I'm trying to do is just get all of those people together because you can immediately feel comfortable around those types of people. Right. When you get into a group setting or, or talk about mental health issues, it's hard to talk about that with somebody who does a nine to five, who really doesn't, doesn't get it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, I also say this, like transition's a human issue. Right. And it's, it's scary. I mean, just like, for example, if you go up to a doctor and you say, hey, tomorrow you're going to have to retire and figure out what to do with your life, and they're probably going to struggle. You yeah. know? And um, I think family members need this information and, and wives and, and brothers, sisters, mothers, dads, um, so that they can understand that, hey, you know, there might be a period of depression, there might be a period of, of anxiousness, of anxiety, and, and you know, you just take it slow and, um, and then do some self-discovery work. But number one is, is treatment right? Figure out if you're hurt. If you're not, great. If uh, Then we could do the self-discovery and repurpose your life. But if you are hurt, the answer isn't a job because you're going to lose that job anyway. Your health is paramount or else everything else falls apart. So that's just kind of what I, what I do in Chapter 5. And there's a lot of big stressors for guys after they're done with the game or the game's done with them. And I just help them through that in an informal process and just educate them about the NHLPA insurance and um, what they need to say to be able to get covered and to make sure that they don't get every single claim denied because of a pre-existing condition. And, um, yeah, so that's uh, that's my mission.
0: So given everything that you know now, if you could go back and do it all over again, would you?
2: I I get that question a lot, and I don't answer it. Okay. I mean, I don't live in what-ifs. Yeah, that's um, fair. You know, I'm, I'm standing here right now, and, um, you know, I, I think what I'm doing, I, I really enjoy it. You know, I really do. I think this is my life's purpose. I mean, my grandmother passed of, uh, with Alzheimer's. Um, her two sisters and brother both passed, so it runs in my family. And uh, neurological degenerative disease runs in my family. And whether I have it or not, I talk about CTE. I only use that word because it's it's popular in the media. Yeah. Uh, what I have are brain injury symptoms. I have brain damage, and I have brain injury symptoms. It's way too early to talk about if I'm going to get CTE or not. So I move forward with proper care and and um, highlighting those treatments that have worked for me and highlighting numerous treatments, you know, cranial sacral, reflexology, massage, chiropractic, acupuncture, uh, functional neurology. Um, you know, there's tons of stuff that uh, that can work because it's not a one-and-done type of thing, right? Sometimes functional neurology doesn't work and sometimes reflexology people don't like it and they, don't, they can't get down with the cranial sacral and the spiritual side of it. So um, just highlighting as many treatments as I can um, and And highlighting testimonials so that we can continue to provide hope because suicide is a means to an end when someone doesn 't have any more hope so that 's what i 'm trying to um, trying to highlight is just hope
1: uh, Dan We talk a lot about the tough guy in warrior cultures uh, prevalent in hockey culture. Uh, but I think we kind of brush aside the chemical dependencies that can contribute and fu- fuel these mentalities. You talked about getting treatment at 25. I think a lot has been uh, has come up in the news lately. Clinton Portis back in the news talking about drinking before games in the NFL. We have all heard about Josh Gordon. Uh, Austin Watson's back in the news. How prevalent really is it, uh, like – the uh, recreational drug abuse, alcohol abuse in NHL locker rooms? Is it a much bigger deal than we think? Is it just a few cases that get blown up? Like, what would you say it's like? I'm not asking you to name names, but the culture that is surrounding that hockey culture.
2: Um, I think it's changed recently, right? Like um, with the whole opioid epidemic, like doctors aren't walking up and down aisles anymore, being able to give us four Ambien to get to bed. Uh, but that was definitely the case in my career. You're overprescribed, you're undereducated, um, and uh, and it's a problem for a lot of guys. I mean, synthetic heroin—that's what opiates are. It's synthetic heroin made by a doctor in a lab, and it makes addicts out of mothers, firefighters, police officers, athletes. Um, there's a lot of anxiety that goes with playing professional sports for some guys. It's um, they can operate, but they need a little help to operate. Uh, during my career, there was a lot. There was a lot of substance abuse, and substance abuse is a direct symptom of repetitive head trauma. You don't understand what's going on. You're not predisposed to these mental health complications, and what do you do? You look for something to numb it out. Um, so, you know, I can't speak to what it is like now, um, but, uh, I mean, <laughs> being an athlete or a musician doesn't really lend itself to being a healthy <laughs> um, a healthy drinker, you know, like you're out of the rink at 12 and then you get to the bar and you got two hours, you know, like, what do you do? Well, you're a binge drinker now. Uh, but when you get out of retirement, um, or when you get out of the game, uh, having a beer at lunch isn't, isn't that normal anymore, but it was pretty normal after practice, right? Guys go have a beer, sushi, whatever, a couple more, um, after games, most definitely. How do you get down from being so jacked up and all the Sudafed and all the stuff that's in you? Um, you know, like we'd like to believe that guys can go home and put their hands on their knees and meditate, but that's just not the case.
0: Well, Dan, I really appreciate you answering our questions. You've been super forthright, really open. And I think that's part of why people respond so well to you. Um, If our listeners wanted to get involved in the causes that you are trying to promote, or if they can go someplace to find some more resources, where would you suggest that they look?
2: um the Carrick Institute um website chapter 5's website uh my YouTube channel that I just started um carbon boom 13 on Twitter and I'm daniel Carcillo 13 on Instagram and um if you want more information just you can follow all of those things and tap into those resources and um yeah i mean I need to be forthright. I don't harbor guilt very well. And so uh, I speak very, very honestly about this stuff. And I think that's the way that you connect to human beings that don't know you. You just speak honestly and vulnerably.
0: Yeah, you're doing super important work. And I think it's really admirable that you've decided to take your fame and your career and turn it into something good. So thank you very much for that. And thank you very much for joining us tonight.
2: Of course. Thanks, guys. Thanks a a lot, Dan.